welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Okay, welcome to another episode of Thinking Like a Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Joe Patrice, editor of Above the Law, coming to you once again from inside the inner sanctum of Above the Law here in New York. I also have my co-host, Ellie Mistal. Free me! <laughs> no, seriously, it's really hot in our office. I, I don't know why it's so hot in our office. That's me. <laughs> yeah, no, so... I can't believe there was no follow-up to that. Like, you had no snarky remark to make. That's because I'm melting. Yeah, fair enough. Well, so we're back. This episode, we're going to turn our eye to another non-legal issues, uh, a series of non-legal issues, and make them legal. So first, though, let's talk about things that make us upset, which is the segment of the show that I always appreciate. Ellie, what's making you upset today? You know, okay, so it's, it's the springtime, everything's nice, I'm out in a nice beer garden, I'm smoking on my e-cigarette, and I'm smoking on my e-cigarette because I have a two-and-a-half-year-old, and I'm trying to do the right thing. And some, you know, bouncer, some thick-neck brute, comes up to me and tells me that I'm not allowed to smoke my e-cigarette outside in the beer garden. I tried to calmly explain to him that that's not true, that there's no city ordinance as of now preventing e-cigarette smoke. I also tried to explain to him there's nothing in the e-cigarette smoke other than water vapor. So it's the same thing as, as me steaming. Um, of course, some, somehow between what he was hearing from me and how that was being interpreted by his huge neck, he couldn't understand me, and he threatened to kick me out of his low-rent beer garden on a beautiful spring day in Manhattan. I decided to put away the e-cigarette because, uh, quite frankly, I'm afraid of the cops. But I'm, it really bothers me. I'm trying to do the right thing, and here's some dude preventing me from quitting smoking in the manner in which makes the, that's easiest for me. Yeah, well, there's absolutely a city ordinance against it, so that's your problem. Why is there a city ordinance against it? Now, that's a better question, but there is, in fact, a city ordinance. They amended the law that had previously made smoking illegal. They added an amendment to ban e-cigarettes and vaporizers. I voted for de Blasio. He was supposed to not have this nanny state bullcrap up in my beer garden. Well, I, it is fair that this law was signed by, this was signed off on by Bloomberg, but I don't think anyone's in a real rush to change it, unfortunately. Do people understand that there is nothing in an e-cigarette that could possibly be linked to secondhand smoking? Nothing. I mean, look, I'm very much on your side. I actually think that it's a good thing that people use e-cigarettes and they should be encouraged to do that to the extent that it stops people from smoking, which is kind of a bad thing. That said... There, there are people who say that there are still carcinogens that come out of the e-cig vapor, and that's why they want to keep it down. That's sad. There's carcinogens that come out of people's body odor, that's... but we can't legislate bathing in public spaces, although, you know, I'd probably vote for that. Right. I mean, they, I don't know about coming out of body odor, but there's definitely carcinogens everywhere, and the idea that we're going to draw the line here seems a bit ridiculous, especially when there's a public health reason why we should be encouraging as many people to find e-cigs more convenient than the alternative. But sorry, that's, that is the way the law currently works. I got back in the beer garden by manspreading the entire time I was out there, man. Screw them. Yeah, but it's that, not their fault. 
it is their fault, but I want to c- come back to the not smoking thing. Like, I'm trying to get away from the, shall we say, beautiful past of shows like Mad Men, where men were men and could smoke whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, without risk of cancer, or, or I should say without risk of thinking that they might get cancer. <laughs> Except none of that's true, since the first episode points out that they are aware of the cancer risk, but... You, you go on saying things that you have no backup for. That's how this whole discussion started, actually. Can I smoke in here? Yeah, technically, legally, no. I don't really care, but I'm not going to report you. This is how the smoking laws work in this country, though. It's not, about what's, what's, it's not about the science. It's about what some white man cares about or doesn't care about at the minute that you try to have your cigarette. That's, that's all it is. Well, okay. Well, you bring up Mad Men. That brings us to what we want to talk about today. So we're going to talk about television, and with us is Bria de Cesare. And Ellie, you're, uh, you actually go way back with her. Yeah, Maria. So Maria's a business lawyer at some large uh, television network. Um, but before that, she was an associate at Latham Watkins and wrote an excellent blog called Sweet Hot Justice, where she detailed her life in the law. Um, we've known each other um, pretty much since I got the job at Above the Law in 2008. Maria, how are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me, boys. So what do you actually do with yourself now? That's a very good question. You mean at work during the day, presumably. <laughs> Let's start there. Okay. Yeah. Let's say I was interviewing an intern. Here's what I would tell them. Um, no, I mean, I work I work for a big TV network. We're a studio and a network. It's here in New York. Most of those jobs are in L.A., so it's kind of cool to be able to do it in New York. And so I am a studio lawyer and a network lawyer. So sometimes we make some TV shows that we own, and when you do that, I'm dealing with agents. Picture entourage, but without any of the sex or drugs or alcohol or fun set near Penn Station. That, so that's what I do for part of my day, um, trying to make those deals. And the other half is once you actually make a TV show, you actually try to get it out on the air in various places, um, Netflix, things like that. And so that's what I do with the other half. It's you know the distribution of the TV stuff. So some of it's dealing with talent and their reps. The other half's dealing with you know, other companies that are trying to get content out there. So it's either the actual actors or the... the it's not the actual actors, because they all have, you know, by the time they're kind of at this level, I guess, for lack of a better word, they have reps. So you're dealing with, you know, mostly their agents, sometimes their lawyers, sometimes both. And Ever their mom or dad? Not yet, but there's still hope. <laughs> um, I mean, occasionally I'll deal with some when we're licensing a film for a totally separate part of my job, because it's a pretty leanly staff company I work with and occasionally there you're working with the actual filmmaker which you just want to take him aside and say dude like get a lawyer get get a friend who's a lawyer watch a show about law and just try to have some representation but no 99% of the time we're dealing with the reps who are everything you would think they would be from watching TV it's kind of fun so really you are doing what if I had to guess I would say 90% of my readers who are law students think that they want to do cool how did you get there That is an excellent question, because when I was in law school, that's what I thought I wanted to do also, and there's no clear path, and apparently, I went to law school out in California. Back in the day, and I think that means, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago or longer, you could just go to law school and you can get a job at, you know, one of these really cool talent boutique firms, or just go right into a studio or a network, and you just started being a lawyer and you kind of learned everything there. That's way less the case now. Um, So what I did, I think, is what I would recommend is the path and what was kind of communicated to me as being the path. Well, first of all, before I even went to law school, I was I was an actor and a theater producer, so I was kind of in that entertainment world a little bit already. You were so connected. I, I was connected at least, you know, emotionally. I had a stated interest, as they say, because a lot of people, honestly, they think they want to do entertainment law because it sounds 
better than like tax law. It sounds fun, but it's not really a thing. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's intellectual property law with, if you're doing something for film versus TV, if you're repping talent versus like more what I do, a TV network or a studio, it's a whole different set of things. I mean, so you really just need to be a good corporate lawyer first, then you learn the industry specific stuff after. So I, I do think now, especially since there's so many people in law school, there's just more lawyers out there, more baby lawyers. So as we all know, you know, you graduate law school and basically don't know how to do anything of any actual value where you can hit the ground running, so to speak. So I went to a big law firm and learn. I mean, the advice I was given by a, a pretty awesome lawyer uh, was go learn how to be the best lawyer that you can be. So I tried. So I went to Latham Watkins in LA. I did mergers and acquisitions, just sort of solid corporate stuff. Lost my mind quickly. And so I was very lucky that I was able to go right from there to a job in-house. I used to work at Sony Music Entertainment in New York. So that was my first in-house gig. And from there, I moved into my current position in TV because I always knew that I wanted to be in TV. But when I was in law school, especially if you have folks out there who may still be in law school and they're looking what to do, you know, I interned at Fox Studios when I was in law school and I was just always really involved. Everything that I could be in in school that had anything to do with entertainment, I did. Because we'll interview folks sometimes and, you know, they say they want to be an entertainment lawyer. They've had absolutely nothing to do with any genre that would even remotely be considered entertainment. And it's just kind of hard to say, well, why do you want to do this? Like, you don't even know what it is. So that was what I did. That's what I would recommend for people to do. You know, I'm sure there is, you talk to 10 other entertainment lawyers, they may have had slightly different paths, but I think people in my year, I was 06, that's kind of where you are. So you're on the one side of the desk. Now, uh, for, for a person like me, I would be considered the talent. Yes, you would. I believe. And so I sat in a couple of interviews with, mm-hmm. uh, with you know, pu- with, uh, I was looking for a publicist. I didn't mm-hmm. hire them. I was looking for an agent once. I obviously couldn't afford that. But in those situations, basically what they told me was to lose some weight and stop being so much of an asshole, which obviously I didn't, uh, we, we didn't strike up a relationship. <laughs> uh, my point is that the people on that side of the desk, right, right. The, the talent reps, mm-hmm. seem to be a particular breed of crusty, uh, subhuman, <laughs> aggressive sort. And you are on the other side of that. So, like, how, what is it like when they come into your office? Well, we're just bubbles and sunshine. So, I mean, it, it is a lot of the cliches, like a lot of the cliches about lawyers are true, too. There, there is definitely a breed of that, you know, really, uh, you know, Ari from Entourage kind of, like, really hard-charging. That's not all of them, though. Um, and, I mean, I think the different agencies, if we're talking about agents versus entertainment lawyers, they have different personalities. And the different, I mean, there's not that many, there's not that many at a certain level. You know, there's the top agencies, there's the top talent boutique law firms. And then, of course, there's, there's other firms that are, that are good and other talent. But most of the ones we're dealing with are from the same handful of places. So you kind of get used to, you know, the tenor of a certain firm. Like, some of them are a little bit more aggressive. Some of them are super aggressive. Some are, some agents are lawyers, some aren't, so that sometimes depends. Some are really good at closing deals. You, you've met a couple of agents who don't have any legal training at all? I would say m- most of the ones we've dealt with don't have legal training. Um, and the ones that do, it does make a difference. You know, it depends on what level you are. Because also you have to remember, at the agencies, <clears throat> there's the agents, and then there's legal departments at the agencies, which we typically don't deal with. Because um, let's say you're a writer, we do a lot of writer deals, right? You're a TV writer, you have an agent, and then the agent often will help you have a lawyer. But let's say you don't have a lawyer. The agency occasionally will let you use their in-house team to get the deal done. And and here's what's interesting about having an agent. Like, part of what it is, like, yes, if you have an agent that's fighting so hard for something that the client doesn't even know about, that's sort of terrible because sometimes the deal can tank depending on what leverage this client has, especially if they're pretty junior. And then the lawyer's fighting so hard or the agent's fighting so hard just to make a point for their agency, not for their client. So the client kind of loses out. 
the flip side of that, why it's helpful to have, like, you wouldn't even be able to come to our doors without having representation. And these reps are, you know, they're pretty solid and they're they're pretty senior. And they, TV at least works in terms of packaging. So, you know, you would have, let's say you wrote a pilot or a screenplay or something. Um, if they're representing a particular director, they may be able to package you into that deal. So you're kind of kissed into it. So you get the benefit of this other maybe you know more prominent, so to speak, talent. Um, so you get to be part of that deal. And the agency gets what's called a package. So basically they get a different kind of fee for putting all these talent elements together. So agents, I mean, it's tough. Yeah, they're taking a piece of your Package sounds like a rogering. (laughs) What's the weirdest request you've gotten from the talent? So like, for instance, Joe, when Joe started working at the Bavoua, he had to tell our bosses that he couldn't write effectively without wearing Captain America underwear. Obviously. So now we have to have a store of Captain America underwear to make Joe feel better about himself before he expresses his talent. Okay. That was just such an arbitrary example of the things that I demanded. Just one of the list. Just, just one of the many. What's the weirdest request that, that you've had to kind of work? And you have, when you have to do it, you have to contractually work it in there. So what's, what's the do, weirdest? You do, and that, that is what's strange. I mean, I think there is, I think this isn't strange, but it was eye-opening to me when I first started. There was very serious discussions with, like, any, no smiling, no shred of anything about um, triple bangers versus double bangers. And yes, so if Ellie is making a face right now that expresses my initial thoughts when I first started working, it's so those are that, those are trailers. That's the different kind of trailer. Um, oh. In terms of you know a triple banger is basically you know you see them in New York all the time. The big ones on the street. They have two or three doors or a whole bunch of doors. And so if you're in a show, if you're an actor, you want to have the fewest amount of doors, I suppose. Um, you want to trailer all to yourself, but that they're really expensive. And the particular network I work for, you know, it's not you know millions and millions and millions of dollars to spend on trailers and all of that. So, so that was the kind of thing. But you will see that you will fight over that. But true arguments about is it a double banger, is it a triple banger, and then you know, is there does their nanny get a trailer? Um, does their perhaps their sober companion gets a trailer? or their groomer, as you might call it. Um, that, that would never make it into the contract. Um, you know, obviously things like hair and makeup, approval over look, how much of, a, you know, a boob you can show versus one boob or two boobs, approval over nudity, nudity riders. So it, it gets pretty specific, um, you know, whether or not their personal trainer can be on set. And is it really their personal trainer or is it a quote-unquote personal trainer? But either way... Do we have money to bring this person down? So those are the kind of things you you get because also with actors, when you're generally, when you're working with them, their contract is done now and, you know, there's options. They're locked up for a number of years. So it's not like every year it gets renegotiated. You know, if it's a hit, you hear this in, you know, in the news and the trades all the time that, you know, the actors from whatever it is, Big Bang Theory or whatnot, they're renegotiating their contract. So sometimes these things get revisited. If you're a huge star, you want to make them happy. They're making a lot of money for the network. But you do try to get all this stuff out in the beginning. And then if the show's such a hit that it necessitates opening up their contracts, great. That's a great problem to have. I'm still I'm still hung up on the personal trainers like you. Like, if you're an actor, your job is to show up to the set fit, isn't it? Like, you would think. You would th- well, it's, well, here's where it's tricky. Let's say it's a, I mean, you know, I don't work on this. If it's a movie, one of these Marvel movies, where, where part of their job is to be super ripped, and that's why they were cast. I mean, sure, also for their amazing acting ability. But, you know, there's, like, a lot of shirtlessness, and that's fine. So for that, you can understand, especially if it's a very athletic part, and maybe they're doing some of their own stunts, where having some sort of trainer on set, sure, that makes sense. What's tougher is when it's, you know, like a very intimate emotional drama where there's no need for the, you know, they're, they're not exhibiting their 
body as much. Maybe there's never any nudity or any even shirtlessness. And then it just becomes about making them comfortable. Again, you know, when you have a network that has so many resources or it's a film, that can be a little bit different. But when it's a TV show, you know, every dollar counts. These things are, you know, low budget is still millions of dollars per episode. And all of these things kind of add up. So, yeah, the personal trainer, that's, I mean, I haven't had a deal yet where I think we said yes. Let's put it that way. Um, But it's a good ask. And, you know, they have to ask. Also, you kind of ask for the moon. And you get maybe three of the ten things you asked for. Um, If it's a thing like hair and makeup and it's a female actor that has some traction and it's maybe a very specific part or it's a period piece, that's where it becomes kind of important. But then, you know, you don't want to cede a lot of creative control because at the end of the day, it's, it's, you know, up to the producers in the studio how the thing should look. So that's the kind of stuff that we, you know, you're fighting about. It's... It feels contentious sometimes, but it's not adversarial. You know, at the end of the day, you just want to make a good show and a show that does well, and you don't want to lose a whole bunch of money on something or spend a whole bunch of money on something that turns out to not be so important and save enough money for the things that are. So that's, you know, that's the heart of what a lot of these negotiations are. And then there's ego, and then you just throw in ego as well. ATL CGI's me. I'm actually a very thin white guy from Wisconsin. <laughs> um, but they don't want me to look like that online. And you get a double banger. I've heard. <laughs> I've heard. Sandwiches. <laughs> Tacos. Yeah, well, let's take a break right now, and we'll come back on the other side of this and talk about a few more, as we like to call them, esoteric issues of law. Sponsors! This is normally the time in our show where we have sponsors, and potentially that means that you could be a sponsor. Think Like a Lawyer is seeking sponsorships. So if you're interested in participating in our programming or would like more information about rates, please contact the team at Legal Talk Network at info at legaltalknetwork.com. Or go to their website at www.legaltalknetwork.com and click on Advertise. Okay, well, we're back. Now let's talk about applying the law to some TV show situations. Ellie, I know, loves this segment of the show because he comes up with these great hypos to have us wax philosophic on as lawyers. What do you got today? Well, first of all, I have two fundamental questions. One How many different ways could I, if I was working at Sterling Draper, how many different ways could I sue Roger Sterling under the EEOC, right? Because look, Roger Sterling is, by any acclamation, right, he is the whitest white man in the universe, right? Like when when I, when I, as a little black boy, when I went to sleep and I dreamed about white men, I dreamt about Roger Sterling. What could I do to get some of his money on an EEOC complaint? Well, first, do you want to sleep with him and what's your end game are you trying to marry him that's an excellent point that's a, I think you need to step back and figure it out first do you want do we want real do we want part of his inheritance or do you just want to get you know more of like a legal claim in there I, I want I want to get I think I want to get my hooks into him so that he has to give me a really good job interesting right all right so, Wait, so you gonna, still want to work there it is the best place to work on the planet right I mean that's, that's if you're a dude right it's the best place to work on the planet no, whose perspective are you coming from? Yeah, that's that's the essential question. <laughs> well, I'm assuming. Are you are you asserting that there is some that there's like a hostile work environment? If you're a dude, I'm you assuming, especially that. a white dude from Wisconsin. <laughs> I'm assuming that I'm the black Peggy Olson, right? I'm assuming okay. that I'm going in there. I'm the secretary. Right. I'm getting coffee, but I have a really good ability, and I have a work ethic, which I don't in real life. Again, <laughs> we're, we're we're making some assumptions here, uh, and I have a g- good work ethic. But unlike Peggy, I can't get you know anybody to have sex with me because of my mm-hmm. large black maleness. What can I do to climb that ladder? 
where to start? See, you, you're really <laughs> setting yourself. I feel like the show needs to be ten years later for this to really come in, come into play. Right, or really ten or, years, ten years later from now, really is the. Yeah, see, because I feel like we hearken back to what was Bob? There was Bob for a while, who was never, because we were also okay. Are you a straight man? Are you a gay man? Are you willing to be gay for play if you need to? I'm willing to do what I gotta do. Okay. You know what I'm saying. Now, I'm a hard worker. Now, here's part of the challenge with that show. I don't think there's anyone there. The one who was there, Sal, he's long gone, and he had no power anyway, the art director. Exactly. So even any favors you may have gone for with Sal, it just really wouldn't have worked. I'm going the favor route. See, I'm, I'm taking a different... You're going for the legal route. Right. If you're going for the legal route, that's going to be a lot more challenging. I feel like your best call is to side with the ladies. In- <laughs> Truly, side with the ladies, get on their side, and help them assert a hostile work environment claim. And you're part of it. You can like kind of throw in a little racism, like sprinkle some racism. That is literally sprinkle some racism on the boobs that are showing up. Like I think that's your best. That's your best tact. That is literally my path to power <laughs> at, at breaking media right now. It's not even. That's uncanny. <laughs> in in general, Maria, how do you how do you feel as far as how law is depicted on the small screen? Um, working, especially since you work as you mentioned earlier with so many writers. Do the writers that are, that are coming into you that occasionally have legal plots, legal ideas, legal mm-hmm. characters in their show? Do they have any idea what they're talking about? It's, that's a really good point. And actually, you'd be shocked, or I was shocked. A lot of the non-writing executive producers on shows, a ton of them are lawyers. So it's not like people have never had anything to do with the law before. Um, I think I think there's a reason, with the exception of maybe a couple shows, maybe you know, Better Call Saul or whatnot lately, that. Working in the law is a little boring. I mean, I I love my job, and I think I have, you know, if you're going to be a lawyer, I think it's kind of fun, the kind of stuff that I do. But even that, a show about my day-to-day would be a very specific piece. It would be like that, that new channel that like shows you a picture of a boat on a river for 14 hours. It's, actually, that's a real thing now. Slow TV is an actual thing. Have you heard of that? No. Oh my well, God. I mean, I know there's the channels that show the uh, fireplace. That's basically what it is. It's this new thing called Slow TV and it's, you know, it's a reaction to the, the mania. You know, it's so many multiple screens and so it's a channel that shows, for example, a boat slowly going down a river for 16 to 18 hours and that's it it's really hot in the uk so is that it's like code here. for you calling your heroin dealer <laughs> <That's> <laughs> not, like and then there's a big explosion no it's it's just it's slow tv man so that is starting in the uk it's it's coming to a tv set near you but i'm always i'm always like disappointed when writers don't even begin to address legal issues in their writing you know take take something like the walking dead all right we mm-hmm. got we got zombies we, we we know it's a post-apocalyptic scenario right Fair we enough. got somebody who ha, who's about to who's been you know whatever killed is gonna turn in to zombie and before they turn into a zombie they shoot him in the head mm-hmm. that seems to me to be uh murder but they're dead already well, see, Joe raises a very tricky point. The, the origin story of The Walking Dead is you don't turn into... Sorry, spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if, you haven't, if you haven't been part of the sensation for the past six years, um, is that you die and then you turn into a zombie. Or let's take it one step further. You are bitten. So once you're bitten, you're done. You, you're bitten, you get a fever, and like 10 minutes later, you're dead. And then you turn into a zombie. Right. So here's the scenario... You've just been bitten. Because, okay, you haven't, like, you haven't been bitten yet, and you shoot somebody. That you, that's murder. That's not cool. Let's say you've just been bitten. So you know, without a doubt, within 10 minutes, this person's turning into a zombie whose only goal will then be to murder you. Right. So, you know, boom, bitten. You shoot them within that 10 minutes. Is that murder? They're still alive. But they're in the process of turning into a zombie monster who's going to kill you. So is that self-defense? No, I think, I, I think it's clearly murder. I think... 
I might disagree. I, I mean, you might disagree. So would, you know, police officers in Ferguson, apparently. Like, I mean, like... <laughs> but you're a thin yeah. white man from Wisconsin. So I don't... <laughs> but this, it's, it is tricky. I mean, it, it strikes me as though, at that point, we were... we Like, in our last episode, I know we talked a lot about the, the meaning of the word imminent. I think when you're in that situation where there's a defined set of circumstances that prove to you imminence, that within 10 minutes this is going to happen, I think you cross over into a world where you can actually kill them in its justified self-defense. It may even be mercy killing. We can even get into a realm of, you know, exploring euthanasia. Like it's a little euthanasia because there has been, in this particular show even, a, a The Walking Dead, where there are some folks, you know, let's say it's, oh God, it's so sad. It's, it's a close friend. It's your mother. And they're going through this horrible thing. They're about to die this terrible death and then turn into a zombie. So there's been some circumstances where people had a little, you know, mercy killing stab right to the back of the head. Now, yeah, step, 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 step. Now the cockles of my liberal heart are are. Warm. That's what I'm saying. Maria, what show do you think did the worst, the most disservice to the future generation of lawyers? Oh, what that's show an excellent question. kind of wrote people in to this little world that we call law hmm. more than anybody else? And if you, if you could mercy kill those writers, you would. And you know, I'm old. So I'm going to, I feel like L.A. Law was a turning point for me personally. That was a very uh, you glamorous. You wanted to be Arnie Beckham or you wanted to be with Arnie Beckham? <laughs> is, is there a difference? Is there a difference for a, for a young girl with stars in her eyes? LA. Um, that was a tough one because it was so, just everything about it. Having been in L.A. and practiced L.A. I mean, no, not even close. L.A. Law is going from one valet in the middle of the night because it's so dark to another valet in your office and you just never see the light of day. That was my experience of L.A. Law. You never see the light of day in Los Angeles. In, in Los Angeles, which is the saddest possible scenario. Um, I, that, you know, that depends if you're working in a big firm. But I think L.A. Law was probably what I thought. I mean, you've got your law and orders, which I would not say glamorize things. So I think those are, you know, I wouldn't say they're a fair depiction either. I'm not a litigator, so I can't really see either way. I mean, there's been no show about doc review, so that sort of cuts out the first four years of many lawyers' lives. <laughs> well, that's coming on that slow TV Absolutely, slow soon. TV. It's, it's the new, I will executive produce that show. I actually I actually blame Law & Order a lot more than really? I think most people do. Because law, while you're right that Law & Order does not glamorize law, Law & Order makes it look like there's justice out there, right? Law & Order makes it look like there is good to be done in the world. If you look at, there was a, mm. one of my favorite Law and Order episodes is, sorry, all of the episodes that involve Jack McCoy not being able to really get the mm -hmm. real culprit, whether it's a gun manufacturer right. or whatever, the, the true the true behind the curtain bad guy, mm -hmm. and then coming up with a crazy legal, I want to do that. I thought that, I thought that's why they gave me a Westlaw it account. It all happens in about six weeks, too. Like, yeah. they wrap it up, you know. Hmm. You got Angie, Car uh, Angie Harmon, who's, you know, hot. Uh, hot and a fascist on the show. <laughs> Let's focus on the important thing, though. She's super hot. And so, yeah, I think Law & Order did a disservice to me personally because I thought that I was going to get in there with my crazy legal theories and make mm. some good in the world. And, then, and and what actually happens is that when you have crazy legal theories, you sit here with Joe Patrice, who says, Ellie, that's not that law. Yeah, like, yeah. Because you had a crazy legal theory having done no research, and it, it causes problems. Actually, that's... That's why my favorite show was never Law and Order. It was Night Court. I always kind of assumed that the way this was going to work out for me was being able to make jokes in front of a large, a very small group of people. And in a way, that is how this worked. You, you also, thought you were Dan well Fielding. Done. You thought you were Dan Fielding. Oh no! I, I, I was making the joke as though I was Harry, but uh, yeah, totally. It'd be great to be Dan Fielding. Joe just sounds like a satchel bone to me. I think that's his legal show. <laughs> 
To finish up, you wanted to talk a little bit about Orphan Black. Oh, well, do you watch it? Mm. Well, that is I do. She's hot. Oh. I do. We're good. She's fantastic. All right. See, all right. Orphan Black. There's so much drama that goes on with, like, those clones get into a lot of, a lot of a mess. Sometimes they're also, you know, trying to kill each other. If you try to kill your clone, is that actually murder? Is it some weird form of suicide? Is it neither? What's now, a- these are not twins. So you can't yeah, get I mean- into a twin thing. But I think they're also, very similar to twins. I feel well. Is it though? They're not very similar. They're they're clones. No, that's that's a whole different that's a whole different field. Of and like, and if someone was genetically created, I mean, they're you know, and it's still not clear the origin story of some of these clones. We're still working that out in terms of hearing. You know, season three is premiering next week, um, so maybe we'll find out more. I don't know. But you know, let's say okay, if it was just you know with all these sort of fertility treatments now, uh, what is it a petri dish, a test tube baby that had quote-unquote, happens all the time. Now, that's not weird. Um, but we don't know where these clones came from. If they came, if they were, like, fully, if there was no human genetic matter making this happen, are they even human? This is also the plot of Prestige, which I have, of The Prestige, which I, I have seen. That. It's a movie where Hugh Jackman and uh, Christian Bale are both magicians. Oh. But it's the good that one, not the terrible. bad one, with Ed Norton as the magician. Yes, that's they came what out, I'm like, thinking of. Oh, that's Yeah, the so Ed Norton wrong. magician, bad. Hugh Jackman magician, good. Excellent. But he Tesla coils himself, like, 15 different times. Ooh. And he kills himself every night, which... I think is perfectly legal. It's you. You get to do what you need to do to you. That's kind of what I'm thinking. That's where I'm leaning. Then again, if I was one of the clones, I might have a different interpretation. What say you, Judge Patrice Stone? No, I mean, I I actually do think that the twins thing were, were underselling a little bit. I mean, it is another person who genetically is identical to you. But, I mean, one of the running themes of the whole show is the way in which being genetically the same doesn't mean you're the same person. Uh, there's a bit of a gap between, for instance... Uh, Helena is nothing like Allison, uh, even though they are genetically the same. And I think that they are individual people, and so killing them would be killing a different person. I think it's worth noting for the audience that Joe has a sibling that he would not kill. Um, That's true. Not true. all of us Also, not, not a twin, though, but I still wouldn't kill them. Shout out to your sister. Very nice. <laughs> National Siblings Day. Yeah. Way to go. Not all of us would say Way the same thing. Yeah, I think we should end it before I threaten murder to murder my sister. I love you, Alana. <laughs> okay, good. Well, if that's where we want to end, I wish, then I'm going to thank Maria for being here. Thank you. And I want to thank Ellie for continuing to leave his clothes on throughout the entire episode, which was always a, always a nice treat for those of us in the same room. Wah, wah. Um, And I want to thank the listeners for tuning in. As always, you can listen to us in a variety of ways, but the one that I want to definitely push is subscribing to us on iTunes because the more subscribers we get, the better our ranking is and can therefore attract a few more more listeners. And I can finally get that personal trainer. There we go, that personal trainer. <laughs> and yeah, and also always listen to us. Uh, not listen to us. You can listen to us here. Also, always read us. We're at uh, at I'm at above the law dot com, and Ellie writes both for Above the Law and ATL Redline. And uh, check out what mischief we're up to on a day to day basis. And with that, I want to thank everybody again, and we'll talk to you next time. Peace out. Bye. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. 